Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome back to another week of Ranching Reboot. I'm glad you're here. This episode has been sponsored by our generous patrons over on patreon.com forward slash Red Hill Rancher. Check the show notes for a link. This episode has also been sponsored by Legends Pub and Grill in Pratt and the Eastus Media Studio on Main Street in Pratt, where we're sitting to record this episode after having a wonderful lunch at Legends. So if you're ever in Pratt, stop by Legends and tell them I sent you. Today, um, we've got somebody who's... I don't know how to describe today's guest. Maybe a little bit of a, uh, a lightning rod, maybe a little bit of a firebrand, maybe a little bit outspoken, um, but he's somebody that wasn't born on this continent. So all the way from South Africa, joining me today in the studio in Pratt, Kansas, with my uh, better half, Tanya, is Nicholas Voss. Welcome, Nicholas. Thank you. <laughs> so you're, you're obviously not in South Africa. Where are you at these days? Uh, we're in Stevens County, Kansas. Um, we landed there, well, first time 2001, and then 2006, we kind of moved there second time. Um, we farm there, kids go to school there, and I guess that's where we call home. Okay. Now, I'm only about 95% familiar with Kansas geography. Stevens County, that's like your southwest corner, right? It's the second most southwest county. Okay. Uh, I think Morton County is two hour west, and that would be the Elkhart County. But so we're the second one. Okay. Good stuff. What's the county seat in the county? Like the main city? You get in. You get in. Yep. Okay, that's helpful. That's where the kids go to school. Cool. Okay. So, you you've only been here sixteen years. Yes, I think this would be sixteen years this year. Um, we uh, first time we came here was two thousand one. They didn't quite turn out, uh, well, several hiccups. And then 2006, our green cards came, got approved in April, and we moved here in June. Well, it's, since I already gave it away, you, you are a South African native? Yes, born and bred there. Uh, moved here, like, like I said, uh, 2006, became citizen 2011. Okay. So tell me about South Africa. Uh boy like, okay tell start. me about your life in south africa like did were you like farmer rancher in south africa yes i i grew up on a farm actually grew up on a ranch uh mostly a cattle farm uh turned a little bit to a vegetable farm half and half a bit halfway through my elementary school and then uh we moved to a another place right on the border with zimbabwe on the limpopo river in 2000 and what's it 1984 i'm in the 2000s and that'd 19, be northwest? That, that's the northern part of South Africa, which is the border to Zimbabwe. And we were east of a town called Messinas, where we, where we grew up, where I got raised, you know, pretty much after this was when I was 12. Then uh, raised vegetables there. Um, it was the time also where uh, South Africa had pulled out from uh, Angola, the, the Anglo war, what they called it. 
or the Angola border war. And uh, so we had, um, I don't know if you can call it insurgents, but we had terrorist attacks on the farmhouses and farms at the time. There was times where we woke up and there was landmines on the road, so would come pick us up with helicopters. That's um, intense. Yes, that's kind of how we grew up. And so, you know, I'm still paranoid at sometimes when loud banks slants off, you know, hit the deck, kind of stuff like that. It's just, you know, it's hard to get that out. You, you mentioned military area earlier. Yeah. It's, it's tough to get those habits out. I still have so, a, I still have more than one that I wish I didn't. <laughs> like you know, situational awareness. I I'm still you know I walk in the mall and I look at suspects as far as I walk, and it's just like something that you're not going to get out of you. Exits and yeah. yes, where yep. do you go? What happens? Um. Anyway, but yeah, that's that's how I grew up and uh, graduated from school. Uh, went to a VOTEC and and did my apprenticeship through the Air Force and uh, aircraft mechanic and worked on the radar group. Uh, South African Air Force. Yep. And uh, and then joined the, what they call there the commandos, which is like the National Guard here. And, and I was part of that since 2004 when they disbanded it. When you say commandos, people think like Army yeah, Rangers, Delta Force, yeah. and Navy SEALs. This is, but. this is more like National Guard. We did like 30 to 90 days a year. You can sign up for 30 days, 60 days, 90 days. It's all voluntary. But uh, that's what was more of community uh, policing is, you know, keeping the community safe, uh, do patrols and stuff like that on the border. Weekends, we do helicopter trips and, and patrol the border and stuff like that. Go rescue farmers that were trapped in their house because of landmines on the road. We we did that, and, and, you know, we had some floods, and we'd occasionally do, take the boat out and go rescue people, stuff like that. But, yeah, it's I mean, it's it's farming. I mean, that's just pretty much farming in South Africa. It's probably one of the most endangered or one of the most dangerous jobs in the world right now is being a farmer in South Africa. Well, I think being a farmer in general is always on the top 10 list of most dangerous occupations anywhere. I, I, would, I would agree with that. <laughs> like it's like farmer, rancher, logger, fisherman, construction worker are kind of like the top five. I, I had a friend always told me um, there was only three original jobs ever since the Bible time, and those were farmers, soldiers, and prostitutes. Everything else came came along, but those were the original three jobs. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they, they do say that prostitution is the world's <laughs> oldest profession. Maybe it's farming. Maybe they have a point. Um, we should probably not continue on this subject. <laughs> so, um, so how did you get from that? To coming here in 2001 and then coming back here in 2006. So we had floods in 2000. That uh, it was my third year farming as a beginner farmer there, and we had floods that they called the centennial floods. I mean, it's like every hundred year you have floods, and and we, I mean, we got our butts kicked, and uh, so we were looking for. I mean, the farm was in trouble financially. We were looking for another option. And at the time, uh, farmland industries advertised in the what they call the the farmers' journal there or farmers' weekly. And they were looking for South African help. And so we applied and uh, got the interview and, and actually flew here to Kansas City and, and got the interview and got the job at their fancy new headquarters in, in Kansas City. And Farmland Industries, I mean, they were all the co-ops were part of them. And uh, so we got hired by them. And that's how we ended up where we ended up because we got a choice between, uh, I think, North Dakota, Burlington, Colorado, and, and Perryton, Texas. And... My wife's like a lizard. She she likes the heat, and so we picked Barrington, Texas, and that was the most southern, most heat uh, we could find. And that's the elevator where we ended up is called Prairiola, and that's just a half mile from where we live now. That's where we ended up. I was custom sprayer, and she was 
the scale lady at the elevator, and okay. that's how we started here in 2001 in April. Okay, as a custom sprayer. Yep, and then that was April. Uh, July, Farmland Industries filed Chapter 11, and so we were without employer that we just, I mean, literally just got hired, and then they decided they no longer needed us. So uh, long story short. Um, what did that do to your visa status? Well, that the visa status just pretty much went into this first part of the visa status. is like the lawyers didn't want to carry on with converting the visa to a work visa. The second part of it is 9-11 happened, and they shut down the visa system the same year. Wow. Oh, yeah. So we got a double whammy that year. and we That decided, did happen that year. <laughs> and, and so we decided we were, I mean, literally watching and listening to that on the radio that morning. And uh, so, anyway, we, we came back to South Africa. We didn't want to stay illegally, and we decided to go back. So that end of that year, we actually went back to South Africa. And uh, the gentleman that I had hired or rented a house from at the time, I, I would help him after hours, from, you know, get done from the co-op. Uh, we'd become friends, and, and uh, he, uh, he offered to sponsor us through employment to come back. And that took about five years, and in June of 2006, we, we got our green cards approved and came back. Awesome. And he sponsored you guys through that. That's really cool. Yep. You want to, you like, give him a shout-out or anything while we're here? Yes. We actually uh, worked there from 2006 till seven. In seven, he offered us a partnership, and we were partners there till 2014. And we just decided to go our own way uh, for several reasons. And in 2014 is when we pretty much became first-generation farmers. That's cool. I mean, you don't hear very many people, like, immigrating to this country and being a first-generation farmer anymore. I guess it's, it's, it's starting to be more common. People are trying to, you know, not just immigrate, but, you know, trying to leave cities and, you know, do what you've done. So... I guess, what is it that you have done in the last 16 years in, in Stevens County, Kansas? Well, uh, after we quit in fourteen fifteen, we, we took on some rental ground, and we owned one, uh, actually two quarters at the time. And uh, <laughs> we had been given more rental ground and uh, kind of, you know, started out the path that I told you is like, you know, try and get some scale, try and get some numbers. And uh, in the first three years... We never got a rain down where we where we got the the land in in the Panhandle, and you know lost quite a bit of money in the first three years. And we decided, you know, that's kind of a different deal. And so we gave some back and and kind of halfened our acres to try and concentrate better on what we had, and actually had an opportunity to buy one of those quarters. And that's how we kind of you know started working or started establishing ourselves in the Panhandle with the sheep herd too. And that was, say, around 2014, 2015? 2016 is when she bought the sheep. Um, okay. So what did the operation look like before she bought the sheep? We were a typical do-it-all, the K-State way of doing fallow, doing the chemical, doing the fertilizer, strip-tilling everything. I mean, we were trying to do everything like everyone else is doing it, pretty much. You were a farmer. We were a farmer like everyone else. The only difference is we were the smallest one around. And so, you know, the economies of scale really hurt us at that time because, uh, one, if you, if, you know, uh, there's so many things. I mean, when you start as a, as a beginner farmer, I mean, USDA can come with all their bullshit from start to finish about how they help young farmers and beginner farmers 
and really there's nothing. Well, first, they, they tell you, they give you T yield, which is two-thirds of the county yield, and then, and then you get insurance, which is 75% of that. You do the math. So, you know, you start off with a, like a 50% guarantee of all the neighbors. So you're trying to do a crop and raise a crop. Well, you can only spend 50%. If you want to do risk management, you can only spend half what your neighbors spend and still try and raise the same crop. Well, if you get held out, which we got held out the first year, you got twice in that field of what you can return on it, and you get your ass whipped. And and so, you know, eventually we got tired of that and, and just trying to figure out, you know, how can we be different. We, we've started down this cover crop path probably six years ago. Uh, we were already down in this regenerative direction of trying to, you know, get less inputs, be more of a price maker. I mean, trying to find some niches that can set a smaller guy apart. Okay. Because obviously the status quo as a smaller farmer, which was a huge uh, – trying to think, learning curve for me going from a 16,000-acre farmer to a 1,000-acre farmer. Talk about having your head examined. I mean, it, <laughs> it, it was, one, I knew I never wanted to farm that many acres again. But two, trying to make the, the math and the, and, the, and the financials work on that smaller scale was really tough, especially without an you know, off-farm job. Right. And, and so in, in 14, when we started, or in 15, we did have a, a cover crop dealership that we started, and we also did have a cash crop dealership with AgVenture that we started. And those two fortunately took off for us, and, and we made those work where it, where it really helped the farm develop over the next over the last six years, really. And so, you know, now we, we've to the point where the farm is both equity and balance and income, everything matches the other two income streams where the other two income streams can really start and look after themselves instead of carrying the farm. So it's, it's to a point now where we, the last two years really is where the, the farming side has been enjoyable actually, because we, we don't just, you know, drain everyone else to keep it afloat, but it's actually carrying itself. So you leaned on your, <clears throat> excuse me, you leaned on your other two businesses for the first several years to kind of support the changes you were making on your land. Ab- right? Absolutely. And I don't see any beginner farmer, young farmer making it any other way because the support from any farming institution is just not there. I mean, they, they can blow steam all they want to, but it's just not there. It's an interesting perspective to take from a lot of people going, like you said, to having an off-farm job looking at that as the way to support. And it seems like you guys looked at the resources, the resources you had on farm already and figured out how to turn that into, or the needs you had on farm already and to turn that into part of your income stream instead. Yes. And, and in 2016, I mentioned, we went, you know, to more sheep and, and kind of the trigger that started that is. Oh, uh, hold on. Go ahead. You got to tell us the story about you and your wife and the sheep. Okay, she's going to be mad at me, but that's all right. Um, <laughs> so, so, so sometime in 2016, uh, she had a savings account with some money in it, and she got home and she was all excited, and the interest was like 100 bucks. And it was one of those perfect Southwest Kansas days where it's 100 degrees and 40 mile winds and just damn miserable outside. Lovely weather. Yes, lovely weather. So I come in and I'm an asshole, you know, just by nature coming out <laughs> of the wind. And just miserable, and, and she was still working in town at the time, and, and so she comes out of her cushy AC office, and I've been outside the whole day, and I just want to be inside. I just want to be left alone, uh, throw myself a brandy, go in the basement, and just not listen to the wind anymore. Yes. And and she comes all excited, telling me about her savings account with this money in it, and I just happen to be a red paint, just scratch all over her little sheet, 
about, you know, she's wasting her time and it's a waste of money and just, you know, she can buy this many ewes. And we had sheep for the last 10 years. And, you know, we, we consume them on our own property pretty well. And we, we love sheep and we love lamb chops and ribs and, and we cook them a lot. But anyway, so I explained to her that there's a lot better return on income if she does sheep. Well, the next day she came back and she had clean, plumped, closed the account, brought all the money home, and she's like, where are we buying sheep? And I'm like, I'm so screwed. And, and that, <laughs> that's kind of how that journey started. I love this story so much and, because and I so, can see it happening but, but, in our you home. Know, that's, that's, so that's when the commercial side of the sheep started. Up until then, we have had 20, 30 head, but nothing commercial. And so in 2016, uh, we started with the sheep, and she's – I mean, she takes care of them and everything, but I met – in the same year, I met a guy who owned a packer in Goldway, Texas, and his name was uh, Craig Jones. And we met up at a field day or, or a seminar up in Salina, Kansas, where I had presented on soil health and cover crops. And, and the owner, Craig Jones, was there. And after the deal, he came to me, and he's like, man, he's like, we, we got to visit. We got to connect. And I was like, what? He's like, well, he's like, we, we pack we pack lamb chops for Whole Foods. He's like, and man, this story would be so good. He said, everything we do is already, you know, this way. It's like, imagine if we can just combine the two and, and combine regenerative ag with, with the whole sheep ranching side. Well, that was a journey we started in 2016 with Craig. And, you know, three years later, he passed away. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. Do you need a minute? That's okay. If you need a minute, take a minute. It's a sad deal because he passed away in 2019. A week before he passed, uh, we had won the regenerative producer for the year at Whole Foods. I like to tell the story because... Greg's one of those guys that saw the vision long before anyone else. And he was a great friend, but he was never there to receive the award. So anyway, that's how we got into the production side of sheep because we had connected with him and we started raising sheep for him. So that's how we got into the GAP certification that I told you about. And um, that's what, what led us down the path of, of raising sheep in a regenerative way. We had always had the sheep, and we had always done the grazing and stuff, but we'd never thought about combining the actual farming side of it with the sheep side of it. So uh, from that time in 2018, we, the two quarters or the three quarters that I told you that uh, we had the chance to farm – one of the landlords offered to, to, to sell it to us. So we bought the one quarter. She actually bought it. It was another FSA screw-up totally from the start. Um, they wanted her to apply because she was, you know, previously disadvantaged or whatever the political bullshit is that they use to, to, for guys that... Some protected minority yes. class, yeah. Anyway, so, so she, she applied for that. Well, they wanted her to have an LLC in her own name and everything, to do this project because she could get special rates and special terms. Well, she did all that. She went through all the all the bullshit to do her own LLC and everything, do it separate. She applied, and, and they rejected her because she doesn't have the experience. <laughs> and I'm like, you know, she's, she's married to someone that has had 20 years of irrigation experience. 
Well, now that doesn't count because she's on her own on this new LLC. Oh, wow. And I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. You make her do that just to reject her on the premise that she can't use me because we're not together. And so that's, that was the last I used my local FSA office, to be, to be exact. And anyway, so the sheep deal then started. She bought that quarter in 2018 in, in Texas County, Oklahoma. And uh, we, we started off by fencing 40 acres. We took the, the quarter with the 40 with the most bind weed, and that's where we started. And then we, we fenced 40, you know, every year from there on. And last year we actually had it fenced. We actually we did it four, four 40s in three years because it's just me and her. And fencing, I don't care who tells you, it's freaking hard work. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Especially building net fence. I mean, it is a pain in the ass. But anyway, we got it built. We got shelters in the middle. And this is um, permanent net fence. This is permanent net fence. About At the time, about $14,000, you know, for a, uh, a mile. So about 30000 for the quarter, <laughs> which, which, you know, that's an investment. Again, you know, we're, we're shooting here in several different directions, but we talked about financing earlier, you know. Yeah. No, no, no big lending corporation, USDA, FSA, Farm Credit, none of them want to look at that because it's not in their little guidelines that's seven pages long or seven lines long that tells you you've got to be, you know, have a corn yield, you have that basis and that basis. They don't want to lend you money for sheep because they have no idea what it's about. They don't want to lend money for water improvements no, if, if either. if it wasn't for our small local bank, I mean, we would still be where we were five, six, seven years ago. They, they have been awesome to work with. And, you know, shout out to Shannon at, at First National. I mean, they, they've been, you know, great to work with us. But anyway, so we started working down this path, and then, you know, we, we got the drought. I mean, which is every freaking year in Southeast Kansas <laughs> seems like it's a drought here. And so we got through this drought, and, you know, me and my wife's like, we, we got to do better than that. And so we, we went and borrowed money, drilled a well, and put up a pivot and, and started dividing this pivot into the well the full 40s was already there so we put the pivot in the middle which we had really designed to do that i mean we we built the we built the pins even so that they wouldn't touch the first tower you know all everything was measured well my irrigation guy and i came up and we got a bed and after we got the well done we put the pivot up and uh it was conservation pivot you know we were trying to do the right thing here go with conservation and the drops are like a foot from the ground and we're like neat this is going to be so cool well we started the thing and the whole freaking drops of every tower hooked onto the four foot fence because no dumbass realized that you can't have foots you know drops a foot off the ground if the fence is four foot tall (laughs) and so you know, that's so, like something I'd do. Oh my god! So, every little detail. Through, I know it's like it's like it's like things. you know you you do this whole project and everything is is planned for and then you're like how the hell are you gonna do this? So I called Jonathan, and I was like, dude, I said this ain't gonna work. He's like, what? And he just like, and I'm like, yeah. I was like, he's like, okay, I'm gonna change it, but you better be fucking sure because it's once. I'm gonna change it once. <laughs> I said, okay. So he came back, no cost, no charge, and he changed it for me and cut it all straight off. Well, we started the pivot and realized that with water in it, the straight cut ones are suddenly dragging in the middle. So we had about 30 or 40 drops in the middle of every tower still hooking on. So we're like, shit, we ain't going to call Jonathan because he told me he's doing this once. <laughs> so, so. My brother had a brainwave. He's like, well, if we can't do that, we'll just cut the fence. So effort, so pretty much 
was it a half mile, a mile of fence in four different directions, we cut from a four foot to a three foot. Okay. To make this pivot across the stupid fence. Well, long story short, now it runs across, and, and, and you know, we, we cut holes in where the, where the towers came through, and we got all kinds of gadgets where it goes through to try and figure out how we can keep the sheep in. But they, they figured out a way to get out no matter what. But at least the pivot can water every 30 now as it goes around. I'm going to have to – you've just hooked me into a tour now. Like 100%, you've hooked me into a tour to come out and see how you have a pivot fenced into quarters – and the pivot can go around, and the sheep don't get through. I've been it, on there. I've been on that it's, it's, all day. I've, it's since it's a pain in the butt, but it's really cool. And once we figure it out, like, you know, we, we keep doing different things to figure out what they've done. So <coughs> my fence supplier is, is a place called S&S in Gulfway, Texas. They have by far the, the best and the cheapest and the most uh, range of fencing material that I have seen. And they're in sheep country, so... You know, they, they know what they're doing. And so I'm down there delivering seed. I go stop by and talk to Ed. I'm like, he's got like a RTV or ATV ramp up front. That's, it's called a cattle guard like you would use, but it's like an uphill deal. And so you, you put it and you And they drive over the yes, electric fence. Yes, yeah. and I'm like, so I'm like, man, this should work to get the pivot across because I sold this down at a, at a farmer, and I'm like, but he built it out of pipe. And I'm like, he's weighs probably three tons, and, you know, I don't have the money to buy that much pipe. And I'm asking how much does he And he's like, well, it's about 1000 bucks. And I'm like, that's $28,000 for four corners for, for seven towers. I'm a lot like, of money. That's a lot of money. So he's like, okay. I said, what if we make it smaller, take half the material out, do this and this and this? And he's like, it's like 460 I'm like, make me one. So – he takes the measurements, makes me one. We try it. I'm like, man, this is going to work. So we order, like, uh, at the time, 14 of it, 13 more. So we come and we put it on, put it on, and, and, and I mean, everything's slick as hell. It worked really good till the sheep ran out of food. Okay. And they just walked through it. Like, if you've seen ever seen a basketball kid doing a ladder on the ground with a, you know, tippy-toe, 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 that's what the sheep looked like running through this thing. <laughs> I mean, it's like, I mean – Five seconds, they're all through. And when one goes through, it's like, meh, and like 20 follows. So we're like, okay, shit, that's not going to work. So then we put a, like a panel on top. Well, that works, but now you got to undo the thing every time <laughs> the pivot comes around. Well, then I'm at a rancher down in Texas, and he's like, what if you take conveyor and put conveyor on on top of that? And I'm like, you know what? So that's our next challenge is trying to get, find some conveyor and put some conveyor on top of that thing and see – because you can't, can't just put a like a gate. A lot yeah. of guys use a swing gate. That, well, that won't work. No, sheep rub. They rub against every freaking thing they can find. So they go down the fence. They rub. Well, here's the gate. Oh, it opens. Oh. I've opened the gate Exactly. Now. Yeah. And, and they have a memory like an elephant. I mean, they can remember exactly what they So they really they are did. pretty smart when it comes to they're getting smart. what they want. They're smart. But, boy, they're we won't get into politics, but they're very. Once you get them, once you get them used to something, they're pretty like demanding. Like they want it again, you know. So it's like this, you know, the whole thing: don't feed the animals, blah blah blah. Right. It's like the same thing. Once once sheep gets used to something, they they really expect. Yeah, it Yeah, when I walk time. out the door to feed my chickens at night, I can't open the door. 
unless I have the food in my hand or else they come inside because yep. they know where the food is. I can't even walk around our yard in the evenings without the chickens following me around before you feed That's them. That's Mariah's fault. Thanks, Mariah. Yeah, She's well. the one who trained them. My chickens didn't do that. Yeah, well, that's a good point. It, anyway, we lost sidetrack, but... Well, while I'm thinking about it, I might be able to hook you up with some used conveyor. Yes, that'd be awesome. Remind me when we're on our way out of here, because you know, you know where the place is, right? Okay. Yeah, kind of forgot where we were. So, sheep 2019, pre-COVID. That's where we were, it was pre-COVID. Yeah, we were we were essential crew. If you remember those fancy words, you know we were essential. You were so, essential. So we were we were special. We Woo! were essential, and we just kept working. You got to leave home. Pretty, pretty much everyone in Southwest Kansas were essential and special for the first because time we in our never lives. realized anything happened until we went to town, and you know it looked like a whole bunch of ninjas walking around with masks. <laughs> yeah, what are and stuff. All, what are all you people doing wearing masks over there? I know it's like you know people. And they're by themselves in their own car wearing a mask. And I'm like, you just can't fix you. But town, I mean, you know, town. you can try with a break or a piece two by two town or two by four. Does. But it just, you know, you, you can't make this stuff up. But anyway, so we never really, I mean, we went to basketball games and, you know, did the whole mask thing to try and, you know, see the kids play and stuff. Cubiton but, didn't even require masks on their kids, did they? No, most of the time they didn't. We were, you know, most of the small communities were pretty pretty good most by of them it. Were. Some of them, you know, got carried away a little bit, but uh you know, we went through the whole COVID deal pretty much and I don't know. You don't feel like it affected you guys a lot. No. I I, I don't think it really your marketing. Did. I know it did your marketing. Uh, I'm marketing, you know, I think lamp sales went up big time. We talked about it. I I think millennials finally found out that, you know, uh hair sheep or lamb or meat sheep is really good and tasty and, and nutritious and you know uh, they're the only generation that actually read, reads the label on the back of a packet of food and stuff. And so they, they're pretty picky about what they buy. And, and that's been our biggest market in, in growth in the lamb industry. Not not the halal, not the uh, not the kosher, not the Hispanics? Oh, I, I would say, uh, um, you know, the ethnic market, the, the Muslim and specifically market, is, is being strong and, and growing. Um <clears throat> Uh, that's been constant. I don't think that's a sudden spike. I think that's been a very strong growth in the market. Yes, but uh, but I don't think that's the 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 spike. I think the spike came from the millennials and 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 you know their demand and they they like to have homegrown USA grown stuff and 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 that's the market we're in and that's the market our packer is in. And so, do you think that's a short term thing or do you think that that trend is going to continue and an increase or even spread to other meat sectors? I think it's on the increase. I, I don't think that demand is a short term. I I don't know if the beef guys are going to pull it off. You're a beef guy. I don't know if you have the numbers on the bulls to pull it off against the Packers, but I, I see lawsuits and stuff happening every time. But I don't truly see a paradigm shift in the beef industry. I mean, do you? Uh, it's going to be tough. I mean, we're at, the, we're at the point with the beef industry and the packing industry that it's it's one of those too big to fail. Like that's what I'm getting at. I mean, we can we could sit here and some of us may come out and you know over the next little bit about energy use to raise protein and, and how sustainable that is. And at the end of the day, you know we're looking down the barrel of five dollar farm fuel, increasing fertilizer prices. You know, our cattle prices they're not where they should be for the input costs. Absolutely. They're, they're not there. And 
I guess, I guess what I'm getting at is there, the fundamental flaw in our economic system is, is the energy conversion ratio between forms of energy and food. It takes too much energy to, to produce food. And, and the books won't balance, and they can't balance. And you know, a system like, like what you're running, where you're running you know, cover crops and sheep and marketing those sheep, to people that want to know where they come from. That's a, that's a lower energy budget than the typical commodity feedlot cow. Okay. Absolutely. And I don't know where I'm at on that energy budget scale. I'd like to think I'm pretty close to the low end because of how I, how I run my cows and my winter feeding program and how they graze all year. Things just aren't going to be, things are going to have to change. And, it, it, is the whole paradigm going to change? Is the whole industry going to change overnight? No. Feedlots are not going away overnight. No matter how gross they are and how much some some people hate them and don't like them, they're not going to go away overnight. They're not going to stop buying corn. They're not going to stop feeding the DDG. They're just not going to go away. I mean, maybe eventually they will go away over time. They're not building very many new ones. Like no. They're not building extra new feedlots to add more feeding capacity into the system. Just like, you know, they haven't built a new meat plant in over 20 years. Why did the big four not build any new meat plants? They don't have to because they can wait for an event like this to depress cattle prices, raise box beef prices, and get a group of guys up in South Dakota to raise over a billion dollars to build a 3,000 head a day plant that one of them is going to buy at 10 cents on the dollar within the next 10 years. Like, it, tell me you don't see that. Well, that's why... I'm kind of, you know, throwing the question back at you. I, You know, we're pretty fortunate in the sheep industry that the packers really don't have the hold on, on our pricing that they have on the cow guys. How? Because uh, I think, okay, so if you look at historically, and, I'm, and I don't know the history of the, of the U.S. lamb industry that well, but I do know a few things. One, I think the, if you look at the, the white elephant in the room, it's the wool sheep. Um, no one wants to talk about it. A lot of guys that's in the ASI, and, and they're probably not going to like me for this, and they probably don't like me for this already, and I don't really care. But um, there, a lot of guys are into those instances, and, and, and they're, they're backing the wool sheep industry because that's what they grew up with. Well, there's a reason why the lamb industry is so under-consumed. It's because, I mean, wool, wool sheep meat sucks. And, and and it's I mean it doesn't smell that good. It it's 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 a market that is made and bred for the feedlot produced animal. And and it's not what we cater for. We cater for a ranch raised like yourself type type animal. And and it's a different market. It's a different market size animal. If you take the ethnic market, it's a smaller carcass. It's about half the size of what they like. They can't profitability kill these animals because you know, we talked about it. Is, is the kill rate is the same whether it's a seventy-five pound animal or a hundred and forty pound animal? Because just like with cattle, big carcasses make the packer money, absolutely, and small carcasses make the producer money. Yep. So what's what what's the pressure in the sheep market holding carcass size down? The demand, because the ethnic, which is the like I said, it's 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 not the biggest spike in demand right now, but it's a very steady growth in demand. But why do they want a smaller sheep? I because, guess is what because, I'm really asking. Because they don't eat the cuts. They want to cook the whole animal, right? They, they want to they, throw it in they, the grinder. They, they they take the animal, they chop it up in cubes, and that's what they use. 
the whole animal. And, and the smaller animal are a more tender, more flavorful animal. And that's what they want. They want a 25 to 40-pound carcass. They want the whole animal. They chop it up. If, if, if you look at their demand, the things that is usually last on the shelf to sell in an ethnic shop is, is the ribs and the lamb chops and stuff like that. Which would which, be the higher cost. Which, exactly, which, which is too expensive. So, and they don't want it. They don't have a way to cook it. And they don't eat grind typically either, right? No. And, it's and more and like so, roast. Yes, where you look at the millennial and the ground lamb and the lamb chops and the lamb ribs are the three prime demand things on the millennials. Which gets rid of the rest of your Because carcass. it's a small portion. They can go at 5 o'clock and they can go by the grocery store, buy two lamb chops, you know, cook them, not, have no waste and be done. They don't, they don't keep any – I mean, the millennials don't keep anything in the fridge. They don't even own a freezer. So they literally buy what they want to use every day, and they don't want to waste. And so that's, that's, the, that's the, what's driving this market, and they want to know where the food comes from. They, they have no interest in buying the typical Sam's imported Australian you know, stuff that's been on the ship for seven months. And I, I don't know. I'm not going to criticize what I don't know, but my point is that's not the market that they support. They support the local market, and the Packers have no control over the ethnic market. They can't afford to get into it because they can't process those small animals at a profit. Like you said, the bigger the animal, you know, that's where the margins is. And so, go ahead. Do you have any concerns because of the way things are going right now that, in our region specifically, that there's going to be too many people that decide and realize that raising sheep is valuable and it's almost um in this part of the country more more cost effective than yes and no everyone wants to raise sheep until they have sheep and 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 probably everybody wants to raise sheep until they try to get rid of them there's 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 a huge challenge in raising sheep on a scale way not in a feedlot when you have when you have sheep year-round on any system, I don't care if it's ranch or on, you know, converted farmland like we do, but you don't realize how much they eat till you got to feed them. <laughs> and, 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 and they will die. And, you know. I heard they try to die. Actually. Oh, they, you know, they, they constantly <laughs> look for an excuse or a place to die. But, but, but seriously, I, I know several people that have gone, that believe in the economies of scale that are big farmers that have, taken two, three, four sections and then buy a thousand head of sheep and suddenly they're going to be sheep farmers and then three years later they sell about 300 head, they lost 700 and they're in the red for that three-year period and and they don't ever want to do sheep again. So yes, a lot of smaller people are going to get into sheep and a lot of smaller people are going to find some really good niche markets. I mean, I'll take an example. There's how many restaurants in Pratt? I, I, well, bet, I bet you there's not a single one of them nope. that have a single sheep producer nope. contracting. No, there's no so, guarantee there's not one in so, town that sells same for, a sheep Same product. for Kingman. So we go west. Green there's Park, not same. even anybody in this town that will sell you a burger that can tell you what ranch it came off of or what, what so, even. So, so that's my point is there's, there's a ton of opportunity. I mean, take Wichita. We're, we're an hour and a half from Wichita. Yeah. yeah. I bet you can have 10 or 15 500-head size farms just for Wichita to service the area to service that town and not keep up and the big packers would never notice you were there the no. the challenge is creating the market or opening people's eyes to the fact that they want the product yes and and i think that's where restaurants are i think that's that sleeping dog that 
if when they finally figure out that they can have, I mean, I'll, I'll throw out a name. I mean, AJ up in, in Burlington, Colorado. I know who you're I talking mean, about. And, and, you know, he produces for the local place there. Um, I bet he doesn't supply enough for them, but he, so they take everything he has. Right. And so. And if he know, wants to grow something weird before he plants it, they've already said that they're going to buy it. Yes. So I think we need to see more of that in every small Partnerships town. Partnerships with Absolutely. restaurants and farmers. So that's a Absolutely. really great point. There's a um, there's a restaurant down, I'm just going to generalize, down by Ponca City, Oklahoma, that does this really cool thing on the weekends where they provide a locally grown meal, and you basically buy a ticket, and you come in for the evening, and they tell you about where the food came from and how they cook it and everything. And so we went down last summer and, and had this meal. It was a great meal. But when I finished, I realized that the meal came, that the meat from the meal, all the produce was actually really locally grown. The eggs were from this really small town. and But the meat was from, tell me where. We, we talked about this when it happened. Remember what? No, the, I really the don't. Big, the big farm over by Ark City. Uh, gosh, Creekstone? Creekstone. Right. Yeah, Creekstone, so, the Walmart, the Walmart farm. Right, and and so and I don't know if it was Creekstone. It was something like that. It was a big. It was they they got their meat from a big giant packing plant that was local to them. However, the meat wasn't raised with any sort of consideration compared to anything else. And this this restaurant was really wanting to provide this experience. And I think if they had somebody to partner with to sell the experience along with. Of, of the animal, along with the rest of the food, that would have been extremely valuable to them. And I guarantee you the reason that they didn't wasn't because they didn't want to. They hadn't been approached by anyone. A lot of people think, you know, oh, you know, that's, that's a small scale. We can't do that. You would be surprised how much produce goes through a restaurant in a month. No, Even you, a small town restaurant. Oh, my dad has owned you, a you restaurant ta- for you, my whole you life. You take amount a of beef, I mean fries, chickens, anything you can think of, lamb. You'd be surprised, and 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 I I'm I'm surprised we haven't seen more of these little partnerships. And you know I I had a deal with with uh, a question last week with someone, and it's like you know small uh, you know beginner farmers, and and I see millennials moving out of the city, starting these things more and more and more. They 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 move out of the city, they find two three acres up on the side, and they absolutely raise animals and vegetables and everything for a single restaurant in town, and they make a living. Yeah, and so, it's possible, and yeah, we've absolutely. convinced ourselves, and we've convinced our kids that it's not a possibility that you can't make a living. That it's less than if you decide you want to live in a small community and provide a restaurant with food for your living. Like that, that's less. If if you go to an upscale restaurant, and you know you're going to spend eighty, ninety, hundred dollars a plate, that guy can afford to pay that kind of price to the producer that's producing him that. It's it's a, it's a win win. It's a lot that's, like what we were talking about earlier. With yeah, the we're hunts. not talking McDonald's. I mean, you're not going to see a, a McDonald's lamb burger soon because they can't buy the junk. I mean, unless they import it from Australia. No, New but Zealand, like a but, situation like I was talking about earlier, where this this place sells you a ticket, and you know maybe you don't even know what you're going to eat, but they provide you a lamb burger they or lamb an chop experience. that you've never had before. You've never tasted it. Now the first time you taste lamb. It's cooked by someone who knows how to prepare it instead of your yeah. own self at that's, home. That's that's screwing it up. You know, I've cooked lamb to several people, and everyone's like, "Man, that was good." We've never had lamb that good, and I'm like, "Yeah," because people, you know, that cook lamb here, we don't know how know, to cook it here because it's, it's not it's in like, our culture. You know, dumbass 101, trying to cook lamb like you do chicken and stuff, and it's like it doesn't work like that. Yeah, you got to know how to cook it. I mean, and, and once you figure out several ways to cook it, 
it it should be part of the you know weekly meal deal you know with your hamburger well, it, with your beef it with should your chicken, it's a much else. more affordable resource for us to have in this part of the world than so, beef and so, we're all cons- so grass-fed lamb is only second to salmon in omega three to six ratios okay that's awesome it is the healthiest grass-fed red meat there is didn't know that and it's probably also the most efficient to grow and in the center of the country, right? I don't know if it's most efficient. Like I said, it's very efficient. It's, it's way more efficient well, than beef profitable, or chicken. Profitability, yes. I that mean, makes, I, we're I mean, not we're not talking about you know how to raise them because they're tough to raise. I mean, it's you know a lot of people say easy care this and that, and for the most part they are. And we're pretty tough. We we call really hard on on our herd too, but you know they're still tough to raise in the numbers we do. To raise twenty sheep is easy. Everyone can do it. Two hundred is tough. Two thousand is near impossible. You got to know. You got to know what you're doing, or or you're gonna have some pretty good losses, and and that's the reason I think the growth is there. But it's gonna be more. I think we're gonna see more twenty people raising you know fifty sheep than we're gonna see guys doing. Which big, makes big. the whole system less fragile, right? How do we how do we repopulate the country? This is how. Yeah. I mean, what what other better way? You know, if you get hungry, you find a place to grow food and you grow it. Exactly. You, you look at Western Kansas, you know, and 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 it's the only people that are repopulating the country is the Spanish people. They come in, they buy a quarter, they divide it in four. There's four houses on it. Every one of those forties has got a horse, four cows, six goats, chickens, sheep, and I mean, tell me how that is not good. For waste in Kansas. It absolutely is good. Because they're, I mean, who else is going to do Especially that? Especially if they're learning and, I mean, they have to take care of their soil. when They, you only they have a, quarter, a day job. All of them have a, have a productive day job. They come home and they take a quarter that's a low, low income quarter and they develop it into a, you know, multi-house, pretty much working little permaculture <laughs> environment. I mean, it's, it's, I like it. I mean, it's, you look at all the small towns and, and little houses pop up around, you know, Hugoton, Hooker, Optima, Gaiman, all those areas has got these quarters developing around town, and that's what it is. And and my biggest customer base on the sheep are are, are the Mexican guys. Are those guys developing I, those quarters? Absolutely. I mean, I if I I've got several guys that buy sheep from me, and and word of mouth, you know, we we raise tough sheep. We don't raise show sheep. We don't raise fancy sheep. We raise tough sheep, and and so. Our customers, you know, when they come back, they're like, man, those are the toughest use we've got or the ram, you know, is toughest ram. Uh, you know, w- when we sell stuff, it's it's known for more of a harder environment characteristics. We, so we you're selling for breeding and genetics as well absolutely. as for food. You too. know, growth <clears throat> growth and toughness because, again, you know, like we you know talked on the ranch, if, if, if I got a dose one for, for parasites, we're selling him or her. Yeah. I mean, he, he's got to be freaking handsome or she's got to be a breeding factory if we don't sell them. Um, otherwise, we, we, we fix them up, we get them medicine, and we put them in the little corn pen, and, and off they go. You know, I, we, we got the uh, enough customer base that wants a grain-fed animal, even though we're grass-fed operation, that we have constantly have three to ten animals in a corn pen, which we've grain-fed and, and sell in that environment. Because so that's we what you guys have it. found for your coals, essentially, is Absolutely. you grain-finish your coals instead of babying them and, and selling them at a feedlot like you would with cows. If we take them to a feedlot, we're going <clears> to <throat> get anywhere from 130 to $180 an animal for a cull you. If we put a cull you in the corn pen... She's probably going to dress out 80 pounds at $4 a pound. So double your money. 
So we, we get pretty much double of what a cull animal would bring, and everyone huh. loves what they're getting. How long does it take to, like, if you're going to do that, you're going to throw a, a sheep in the corn finish pen, how long does I would, it take? I would say six to eight weeks. Okay. It's a lot faster than a cow. Well, wait. Yeah, I mean, that's why sheep. Yeah, usually by eight weeks, they've got a good half inch of fat on them. So a, a sheep is going to, f- uh, what, what am I trying to say? So a cow... A bovine converts at about seven to one, like seven pounds to one pound. What is it? Does a sheep convert around three to one? I have absolutely no idea what you're referring to. So okay, you're help so they around. like it takes uh, seven pounds of corn or seven pounds of forage to put a pound. Oh, I got you. To pound on a cow? I have absolutely no idea. Okay. Uh, if if the, I was a feedlot guy, I would tell you, but I I have no idea. We we feed, I have no idea how many we, pounds we, of grass feed, it takes on a cow. Them, we feed them oats and, and corn. And they got app, app, you know access to water and hay, but we feed them corn and oats for about eight weeks, and and we usually don't do it for the gain because they're already a full grown animal. So I I would have no idea how to put that into gain terms because we don't we don't ever do with the, with this with a young animal because our young animals are all raised on non grains, and so this would be a mature animal that we're just trying to condition and, and get some fat on. Do you do anything different before you send your finished? animals off to packing or do they just go straight do they go at a certain time of year or how does that work usually they they want them around 100 to 120 pounds and so that's anywhere from six to nine months okay and so we'll wean them uh if we have dry if we have forage we'll put them back on forage if we don't have forage we'll dry lot them and they'll get a mixture of probably alfalfa and peas and sunflower and cotton uh, everything that's considered you know non-grains and non-cereals and we'll finish them on that with hay, obviously. Um, if we have pasture, they'll be on pasture, obviously, because it's a lot cheaper. Right. Um, which in, you know, southwest Kansas pasture is like chicken teeth. I mean, it's like <laughs> this time of the year, especially. I mean, we've been bone dry. I mean, you guys have not been much better than we are. But, I, you know, looking yeah, at I don't, your grasses, you're, you're so, a lot greener than what we so are. It's so much worse where you guys are. It's so much worse. It's like, you know, Monday, the, we were, what, 104, 105, 44 yeah. winds. I mean, it, it takes the two inches of rainfall we had last week. I mean, it's out, gone. Out, it's just gone. And, you know, like, with that being said, it's horrible. But consider being your neighbors and having the land that they've had that's been treated that way for all these years. Like, what you guys are doing makes a huge difference in how tolerant you can be of the horrible temperatures and weathers out there. I don't know about tolerant. It's more like, you know. The liquor stores make good money, and tolerant. that's about it. <laughs> you build, it just depends if it's you know whiskey or vodka or brandy in my instance. But you know, I, I think you grow tolerance. I don't you do. think you have it. And insanity. I mean, it's like I, I don't know how people keep saying out there. It's like, you know, our plan is to probably you know move out south somewhere, Oklahoma or Texas, when when the youngest one, which is now south seventh or grader. east. Southeast. East? Yes. <laughs> it's always east. Yeah, I would, yeah, I mean, I would definitely go east. I, I, I am so tired of droughts. You know, where I grew up in South Africa, we were about 12 to 18, inch, 18 inches a year. But we did not have the wind. Right. Uh, we had mountains. We had trees. We, we had humidity rivers. too, uh, right? Like l- Not much more. I mean, it's more like an Arizona heat. Okay. And a Florida winter. Like we would forty we were forty degrees in the winter and about hundred and twenty in the summer. Okay. And so it would get really hot but a dry heat, but in the winter it'd be forty degrees. And so 
we, we're we're not. My wife hates snow. Like I said, she's a lizard. You know, I don't know if you've seen those desert lizards that stand on two feet and then they yeah. swap the two feet. That's her half the time. She loves hundred degree weather. She'd be out in if it you all go the out time. in the morning at noon, it doesn't feel hot as long as you go out early. She, she even in the middle of the day, she'll be out. I mean, mm-hmm. she she looks dark, dark, dark when you see her this time of the year, and and that's just she's outside all the time, but. She can't stand the snow. I mean, there's a cold front on the TV. She gets goosebumps. I mean, it's like, I mean, she can't handle the cold. And so we'd probably go somewhere east and somewhere south where we can bear the humidity and, and not get as much snow and get 50 inches of rain. I I can't wait for that. But You guys probably are in a really great place to raise your kids. I, it is, it is a really, is... really, really good community for raising yeah. kids. I, I mean, it's it's been really good for us. It's been good for the kids. I mean, the kids have done so well. So I mean it's it's been a, it's been a blessing to to be there, and like I said, if it wasn't for the weather, we'd probably retire there. But uh, the weather is just stupid. I mean it's just, yeah. I mean unless you love a desert, you can't wake up and expect the weather every day to be great. Uh, it's even a desert. The, even the desert's fine, but the freaking wind that blows every day that's uh, uh, it's a windy it's, that's what it's the wind for me. It's just it drives me insane. The sound of it, both Brian and I, well, like halfway through the day when it's windy, we're both just like, okay, I'm done. It'll usually blow me right back into the house at about 25 miles my, an hour. My office is in my basement. So is his. Yes. And, and <laughs> I will go straight it. into my basement, and I'll pour myself a brandy, and I'm like, fuck it. That's it for the day. I mean, I'm done. It just You, you just get to a point where it's like detrimental to your mental health to be outside it just you have to take a break that's probably why the people that settled this part of the world built houses like dug holes in the ground i don't blame them <laughs> to they get them. out yeah, of the you wind build, build your house into a north side of a hill we've we've actually seen dugouts before and i'm like man why would you build a dugout into the north side of a hill the wind would blow in there well gee many peats in the summer you know why it's exactly yeah. where you'd want to build it with a yeah. hole on the south and, end. and on the sheep you know uh, we lost oh february march we probably lost, well, I'll tell you this part. We, we had about 50 or 60 orphan babies in a, in a, in a month span. and we, This year or last year? This year. Okay. When the wind blows, she'll have twins. She'll get the first one cleaned up. She'll have the second one. By the time she has the second one, the first one wandered off. She can't hear him. Uh. He can't hear her. And so we, we, my wife goes down once a day. In Lambing, she goes twice down twice a day. And so she'll get there. There'll be a baby in the corner of the pens or in the corner of the pasture just laying there half dead because his mom had him and she can't find him because they 90% sound. If they can't hear each other, they're screwed. Yeah. And when the wind's blowing 50 mile an hour, they just can't hear each other. So every day she'd pick up three or four. If the wind blows one day a week, she'll have no babies for six days. The day the wind blows, she'll have seven, eight babies. Wow. And so, I mean, she it's was a stressor. Oh, she was. She was. <laughs> I mean, I met the wind. It, is it, a stressor it was for the really bad even. on her for about two, you know five six weeks, and then they come up and and they're so you know they never got the colostrum they needed. I mean, and they're just weak babies. So let me ask yeah. a stupid question: Why are we lambing when it's so cold? The same question we have with cows. I mean, I'm sure there's a when, reason. When do you lamb that the wind don't blow? <laughs> There, well, there when, isn't a time that the wind no, no, doesn't no, no, blow. The wind, I mean, the, the, when the wind's blowing in May. This, this was not, not cold. I mean, well, honestly, she, she lambs after spring break. Like she doesn't so lamb. April, she doesn't lamb in the winter at all anymore. She quits in November and she starts after spring break. This is after spring break we're talking about. So what's killing them? The wind. Just, just they just get separated because the wind. It's not separated, then they die then of she hunger. Just can't find them. Okay, I understand. Yeah. It's I not understand. a temperature thing. 
they're not it's a, freezing it's a win thing. they're alone they're they're starving because they're alone yeah they okay. can't find their mom they're just they they're without food and if we want to the period of time in this area without in this area without much wind like with the least amount of wind is summer yeah so for about for June. from pretty much now middle of june as we record this like might get released in july or whatever but middle of june till about september october even um i don't know i would i would even say see, like, see what we no there's I, the, i've seen the data from the wind farms the like su- there's there's less wind in the summer than any other time of year there's more days of less than 10 miles an hour wind in the summer than any other time of the year the problem with the lambs is what they call trash lambs anytime you lamb in the summer the heat just kills them they yeah. don't grow there's, I mean, I know that's what I said. I know there has to be a reason because, like with cattle, I know there's a reason. Originally, people used to calve early, and now that doesn't necessarily make sense. But I also know that to do with markets has has reasons, and that there's all kinds of reasons. So too much heat can clearly be a problem for them as well as too much cold or too much wind. I know as you go north south on the lamb industry, they they, they change months to to fit the market. We we don't have that problem because our market's constant twelve years a year twelve months a year so we don't change for that but we try and do the optimum lambing time and snow and stuff like that as always you know blizzards always you know kept it out of the lambing the winter right and so that's why we go after spring break but you know when you have the wind like this year I mean it's just been terrible yeah that that's an interesting problem that people probably wouldn't think about and this year has been I think it has is, is there's been record windy days a lot of them out in Dodge City. Like, a lot. Yep. I was talking to Michael Thompson the other day, and he told me that uh, it's like twice as much windy days as any year before, back back to when they started recording, over like 30 mile an hour or something. I have absolutely no trouble believing that. I think I've also seen where this is like some of the driest period that we've ever had in this part of the world since we've been starting to keep records. Yeah, if it wasn't for, I mean, the last month we've had some moisture, but up until that time, it's been brutal. It's, I, it's been, I mean, no I feel weeds, that pain. No yeah, it's been brutal. Yeah, there's a lot of times we got rain that it was like right, started right past them, too. I mean, you could see it out, out in western Kansas, and it was probably yeah. building up right over you guys and not raining. Yeah, and we've had several that, I mean, just 20 miles east of us at Medicine Lodge. I think they have over three, if not four more inches of rain than we have. Yep. 20 miles away. Yeah, it's wild. It's It's pretty spotty. We've watched, I think, three or four big storms in the last month, like, pop up between us and town. It is what it is, you know? It it rains on the just and the unjust alike. Yeah, I I got a guy in Texas that I I work with that uh, I've been giving him our times. Like, you know, he's got a fiery preacher. It's not obviously not working and working for him, going to the wrong church and <laughs> just giving him hell. But he's been one of those that has had less than three inches up in hill country, and everyone around him has had nine, ten inches. And, he's, you know, he's been selling sheep and selling cows, and it's like, what else can you do? That's about all you can do. It's not much more. Okay. So what kind of sheep do you have? I don't think you've said what breed you have. So Dorper. They're uh, – you get the Dorper and White Dorper. So Dorper is blackhead, white body. White Dorper is just white sheep. Okay. Um, we have the Dorper, which is the blackhead one. And they're the fastest growing breed in the U.S. They are a hair sheep. They are a meat sheep. They are in the top ten. They pretty much dominate the carcass competitions every year. Uh, their meat-to-bone ratio is superior to almost everything else. They're uh, a lot of meat 
versus the bone. If you got a a hundred pound Dorper, it's going to have as much meat, give or take, as a hundred and forty pound uh, wool sheep. Really? Can That's, you explain what hair sheep means? I know what hair sheep means, but so maybe you don't some shear them. Don't. They're, they're, they they grow hair like wool, and they have a thick coat in the winter, but they shed it in the in the spring. In the summer, they're bare. They have like a skin like a goat, but they have like a ridge back uh, on the top of their backs that keeps the flies out, and that's what we call a perfect dorper because they're they're all the shed, all the wool is shed besides for a little ridge on the back, and they don't have fly strike when that happens. If you got one that's got too much wool that overheat overheat, they won't be as fertile, they won't take, they won't breed as back back as good, and so that's another thing we call for is is, is we have some woolly ewes uh, that I call. They're hair sheep, but they're a lot more cover, and 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 so a dorper is, is is a mixture between a hair and a, and a wool sheep. Okay. But they're but they're so they got a wool cover with hair on them, but they'll shed, and so when they when they got more of the one trait in them, they'll have more wool, and they tend to be you know negative, uh, not as fertile. If they have more hair, they'll get uh, more fly strike, more fly issues, and they'll overheat too because of that, and so you got to have a balance between the two. And uh, but yeah, they're 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 a sweet, very tender meat, um, really good tasting, uh, very good uh, uh, docile animals. They are they are bred in South Africa, developed in South Africa. Um, they they can withstand. I mean, they they are raised a lot of them in the Karoo, which is like uh, New Mexico, pretty much. I okay. mean, it is just dry. They're they're bred for a dry, dry area. They're probably some of the best converters there is which is another reason they are very hard to duplicate in a feedlot environment because the moment you put a dorper in a feedlot environment, they gain kidney fat, internal fat so fast, and then they're not marketable. They get sick. Not, <laughs> they... just, not just sick, but, but the customer don't want to pay for a 50-pound carcass that they got to trim 10 pounds of fat off. And so that's what makes them so good on a ranch, on a ranch environment because you can literally you know, have them on hay – and and they'll be fat, and and so that's that's what makes the dorpers so unique for our area. I mean, there's dorpers in Florida, there's dorpers in Minnesota, Oregon, California. I mean, they they're in almost all the states here because they're so adaptable. Um, cold, heat. I mean, they just adapt to their environment so well. And and they're like I said, there's a reason they're the fastest growing breed. If you look at the markets, curiosity, just interesting. Um, you look at San Angelo, you look at Hamilton, you look at Goldthwait, all the big sale barns, there will be wool lambs and there will be door-per-door cross lambs. It's okay. the only breed that gets mentioned on any sale barn ticket. And so and there's a reason for that. I mean, they, they are very sought, very sought after, very fast-growing uh, breed. What's the downfall of the breed? What's the... There's not a lot. Um, they're expensive. They're expensive to get into. Um, and genetically, uh, the rams uh, is hard to produce a good quality ram. Uh, the the U and the U frame of in, in the U.S. is is very much up to date. I think there's some really good productive ewes. Uh, the rams are are leap years behind South Africa when it comes to genetic development. Um, since you can't bring in anything from South Africa, you can only bring in pretty much third party. Uh, uh, 
you know, embryos and stuff in from New Zealand or in, in Australia. And so uh, foot and mouth is... Uh, just, I'm going to have to ask why we can't bring in animals from South Africa. I'm, you can bring in animals, but the, but the, the quarantine, I think, is, is so tough that you can't do it profitably. Not worth and it. I know that the embryo exports is shut down because of foot and mouth and all kinds of regulations. But the moment we do... Uh, there's some breeders like like uh, Mickey Phillips Dorpers, Ash Phillips is a son. Uh, you look at their Dorpers, and it's like world class. I mean, they're the, the best breeders in the world, and I would love to get my hands on some of those genetics. Uh, and, and they're South African. Oh, absolutely. Uh, he's actually going to be here in a, in a month or two, judging in, in in Fredericksburg at the Texas Hill Country, and they we we bring in South African judges to to come and judge some of the local deals and it's really good to, to enforce the standards that way but have him go collect a couple of straws and just slip them in his I've wallet told him, you know I'm, I'm gonna try and go there and, and bring a ram lamb back as a support animal and you know get him on the plane <laughs> and, you know Emotional. they bring they do dogs they do dogs and cats and stuff just you know as a support animal so i don't see why i can't bring a little sheep over an exactly. airplane as a support animal emotional support absolutely i, don't I see like why where your head's at everything you want to do is illegal not. screw it you can figure out a way yep i mean you identify as a shepherd you yep. should be able to have a sheep. I don't you. see why he can't identify as a human for the flight. So this is a great point. It is a great point. I mean, you just get the right flight attendant, right gate agent, and you'd be like, "No, he he really identifies as a human. Yep. He really identifies as a non-human. You'll really offend him if you don't let him on the plane." Yep. Boy, we've gone way too far off the deep end with that <laughs> crap. <laughs> yes, we have. Ah, yeah, we haven't really talked about anything yet. No, well, I don't have it. It's, it's not really much of a list. It's just a couple of notes. So, I, and I know, I know you're itching to talk about it. Tell me how you feel about ethanol. Oh, you're throwing me in the deep end here. Yeah, yeah. Let's um, just piss everybody off. Well, how do you- switch gears real quick. Guys, oh. We're going to talk about corn and ethanol now. So, if you're easily offended, so turn I it have off. absolutely nothing against ethanol. Um, I just. We talked about it on the ranch. You know, ethanol and the ethanol industry is great. Um, just like any other industry, I don't think our tax dollars should pay to, you know, make someone bigger and better. But uh, everyone to everyone their own. The, the biggest thing I have with ethanol is the renewable part. Um, yeah. You know, up in, up in Iowa, you can call it renewable. In, in southwest Kansas, I don't see how you can call it renewable because any time and, – and don't want to sound like a hypocrite because – you know, I'm growing corn, and it goes to the feedlot. But, it, I don't, like, but I don't call it renewable corn. I don't call it renewable feedlots either. There's there's so. nothing wrong with participating in the current system as it exists that we can acknowledge is screwed up or could be better. There's nothing wrong with participating in that system as long as we acknowledge our part in it. That's that's and that we're trying that, to make build a build something better. You know, we we we're trying to get out of the cash crop industry. I, I've told you this. We're trying to get into you know mostly grazing perennial grazing forages for the sheep our whole farming system is headed that way and and we're using cash crops to support our sheep development and forage based system development into the point where we can make it profitably and, and make the switch but until then we're we're screwed and we have to do cash crops like like sorghums like corn like soybeans but my point is you cannot call ethanol raised in southwest kansas renewable with a clear conscience knowing that we're pumping water out of the ugalala which is non-renewable yep to me that just 
sits wrong with me, and 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 I will have this debate it's a with lie. anyone. It's just plain and simply it's, a it's, lie. It's like again, I have nothing against the guys involved in it. I have nothing growing it. Just don't call it renewable because it's not. It, it it's it's, well, it's a fake. It's an. It comes down to like an a question of emissions and like how they categorize emissions. And just bear with me. So there's. I'll throw a car analogy out. So there's three kinds of emissions that they're starting to, to categorize for a business. And like this, this goes into um, ESG scores, environmental, social governance scores that, that, that they're starting to talk about now. So you have your scope one emissions, scope two and scope three. And the car analogy is the scope one emissions are what happens when you turn the key. Okay. That's your scope one emissions. What comes out of your tailpipe, the waste oil you used, the waste tires, the waste brake pads. Okay. Th- those are like direct effects, scope one. So scope two is going to be the energy and emissions of taking those assemblies and putting them together. And scope three is going to be all the emissions that are emitted, making those assemblies, processing that material and mining it out of the ground. So, like you can look at a company can look at their scope one emissions and say, oh, we're not that bad because we don't emit much out of our tailpipe. But if you're making iPhones that are full of copper, molybdenum, gold, silver, lithium, and all this other crap, those are not clean mining processes. They're not clean refining processes. Yeah, when you're in that room assembling the phone, you're in a completely German dust free environment. But all that stuff comes ripped right out of the ground at very low purity and has to be refined and processed and refined and processed before it eventually ends up in the phone. So what I'm getting is very few people have looked past their scope one emissions. And now we're getting companies starting to look at their scope two and scope three emissions. And I don't think very many companies are going to survive a scope three emissions analysis, especially the ethanol industry. Because, okay, so we have... They can claim that there's like maybe some positive environmental benefit, like there's a positive carbon balance to burning ethanol in cars. I don't buy it. Like I have a really hard time seeing how how burning ethanol is actually saving any fuel from any fossil fuel from being burned. In order to grow that ethanol and grow to grow the corn for the ethanol, like you said, we got to pump a lot of water out of the Ogallala Aquifer. That's really deep. Which costs fuel to pump alone. Which Which costs fuel to pump. Oh, well, my irrigation pivots on an electric. Yeah, well, that still costs fuel. I mean, whether, even if it comes out of a coal-fired power plant. It's still fuel. It's still a fossil fuel. I mean, it, if you're going to pump all your irrigation water with your own private you know, wind farm, <laughs> fine. Great. Do that. I don't care. So we've got to pump a lot of water on it. Oh, well, we've got to build that irrigation system that requires a lot of metal, a lot of pipe, a lot of plastic, and a lot of fittings and some controls. You know, you can't just, you know, hammer that with a rock on, you know, with one rock on another rock. And then there's also the inputs, not to mention the big green tractors, not to mention the big implements, not to mention the combines, not to mention the trucks to haul that crop to field. So we have all of these things that nobody's looked at the scope three emissions on. And we're just saying, we're just going to dump all this energy in, ignore everything below the line, and just look at what we're taking off the field and what we're putting in here and saying, yes, this is green. Like, it's absolute and utter madness to be taking fossil fuel that is millions of years old, to be pumping water that's not much younger than it, to put on a crop that we're going to put on even more synthetics that are derived from fossil fuels, 
spend more fossil fuels to harvest it, to transport it to a processing facility, to put more fossil fuels into it. And then we're going to take that product and blend it with our fossil fuels and say we're doing something. I don't get it. I just, I can't get it. Are there actually, are there actually educated, um, I'm using quotes, nobody can see this, educated folks that are genuinely trying to convince people that ethanol is like net positive for the ecosystem? Like surely nobody's actually saying this at that point. Like, Absolutely. There are people still saying that. Absolutely. Even here where we are. I'm sure there's university professors that have built a career on telling people how good ethanol is, and they'll never back down from okay, that. Okay, I, I, I can buy that people are telling people that, but do you guys think that those professors that are saying these things actually have the ability to turn the blinders on to realize that all of this there's, is not? There's a lot of data out there that supports them. How that data is accumulated and how true it is and how unbiased it is, I have no idea. But, but there's a lot of data that they use and support, I mean. So, I don't know. I, so, it depends on where you buy your science from. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. I guess it depends on the scientist you buy. You bought, too. Exactly. <laughs> a lot of it, yeah. I, I, ethanol is just, you know, 10 years ago, even five, six years ago, you probably could have convinced me that ethanol was okay because I didn't really think about it. Well, it's like, I mean, tell me how it's different from the solar industry. Tell me how it's different from the wind energy. I mean, if, if, you, if you really think about all the processes you mentioned, you manufacture something, you can, you can almost throw both those industries in the same deal because it takes a massive amount of energy to produce a solar panel. It takes a massive amount of fossil fuels to get a wind farm up and running. Yep. Well, it and, takes and a massive amount of fossil fuel to keep I mean, the so, wind farm so, up so and every, running. All of those are, are, you know, probably in the same category. So, I mean, there's a reason... I don't know who bullshits the science and who don't. I mean, I, all I'm saying is you got to ask why. And the moment you start asking why, there's a whole lot more questions that pop up about every, every one of these. Um, you know, natural gas, a lot of people are flaming it. But is there really anything more sustainable at this point than, than utilizing natural gas? I, I that's, don't know. That's, that's a question I've asked a lot of times, like when we talk about fossil fuel, and Brian, Brian and I have talked several times about like energy, and I just told him the other day I was having a hard time with, with even like eating food now because I feel like everything, every single bit of food that we eat that comes from more than 100 miles away, I'm able to afford because somebody else is being exploited. Um, Somebody down the road is being exploited, and if you're if you're not using a fossil fuel to produce it, somebody's being exploited. I don't and know if, if you are, read all of Joel Salatin's books, but you know, in one of them, he he talks about the, you know, everything that gets transported literally eighteen hundred miles, so you can have a fresh strawberry on your plate. And yeah. In the middle of the, you know, winter. You should not have avocado toast in February in Vancouver, Canada. Exactly, I, I get that, but is it realistic? And, you know, so is, you know, are we going to go back 50 years in technology just because we have a sudden moral compass when we don't, I'm not going to have no, avocado? No, but we might have to go 50 years back in history because we don't have a choice because the truckers can't get the damn avocado well, no, here I anymore. mean, that's, that's, a, that's, that's a, what I'm seeing that's, and that's saying. A, that's a point. You know, the, the, don't get me started on the trucking industry, but, you know, back to the strawberries and avocados, like, I think we got to draw a line somewhere about, you know, I, 
I'm not willing to give up avocado just yet for seven months of the year. I mean, it's like, you know, you got to, there's export, there's a lot more to it. I mean, you know, Mexico's got got time where they export a, a crap load. We're all on the same continent. In the summer, you might have it Florida. You might have it, you know, I, I think it's a, I think global trade, I mean, you're a big global trade guy. And, and, and I, and I think global trade has a way. And I think some of what Joel's trying to say makes sense if you want to go back to the roots and, you know, be low energy producing food, but at the same time, I think we got to be realistic about. Uh, you mean, I'm, if, I'm if not you, big global trade. If, if you if you uh, if you can uh, export, if you can sell beef off the ranch to New York, why wouldn't you do it? At a good price. Brian might be the wrong guy to ask that question to. On it, okay. Saying. So you're, you're, you threw kind of a moral question at me right there. Like, if you could sell beef in New York City, would you? having a ranch in the red hills of kansas yes and no i would i would much rather sell all of my product right out the ranch gate to my neighbors 100 percent. i would much rather take care of my neighbors and my community first but if my community my neighbors were taken care of and somebody in new york wanted to give me a 50 percent premium over what i was selling here for you bet your ass i would put it on a truck and send it to new york city that's the part that I, think I disagree has, with the Joel Salatin deal. It's like we're all looking at opportunities and getting the best, you know, return on investment. And 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 if you know Pratt don't buy every beef that comes off your ranch, but you can sell, you know, at, at a twenty percent premium in Kansas City or at a fifty percent premium in New York City, why would you not do that? You wouldn't do it if it wasn't reasonable. And I think it has more to do with instead of like everything that Joel's saying is right or wrong, has more to do with being intentional about not only like what you're buying, but what you're selling and why. And if Brian wants to sell beef in New York City, why wouldn't he? Well, he wouldn't do it if it wasn't reasonable cost-wise. And if the shipping expenses offset the, the profit, then it then he wouldn't probably want to do that. Yeah, no, regardless of who pays the shipping. And in the long run, if it's not profitable, you don't do it. But the only way it becomes profitable, typically, is because somewhere down the line, someone has been exploited, right? Like, it's and, like and your, this your first point, you know, our food is very energy and efficient. Yeah. I, I don't see that changing. I, I just don't see – we almost got to have a total disaster to, 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 to go back to local. What, like to, $6 diesel? Even $6 <laughs> diesel. I mean, really? If, if you go to any town – I mean, I'll start Wichita. You you go to Wichita. You go down to Oklahoma City. You go Dallas. You go Abilene. And not so much Abilene, Texas, but you go Lubbock, Texas, Amarillo, Texas. You go up uh, Kearney, Nebraska. Any any one of these towns that are growing, there's just freaking hundreds and hundreds of houses popping up around these cities. And it's like... I don't know where they work, if they're all lawyers or all doctors, but someone making money somewhere. And and these people are are going to the Whole Foods. These people are going to the Hy-Vees, and they're buying $17 a pound lamb chops. Yep. And they're buying the $12, you know, T-bone. It's, ex, it's people fleeing the coasts and the two built-up areas on the East Coast and West Coast that are— I don't know if they're coming from the moon, but— they're most spending money. It doesn't money. matter. They're most bringing a lot exactly. of money. They are spending and, money. But most people that live those lifestyles, and not not as a whole generalization, but most people that are living those suburban lifestyles with those houses that they're building that are $300 ticky-tacky houses are living on credit. I don't give a shit what they live on. If they, if they pay me a premium for my lamb chops, 
I don't care. <laughs> if in they're the paying seventeen dollars a pound yes. for lamb chops. In the short term, yes. But I, when you I when I you don't add think short term, those that growth's not gonna stop. It's gonna take a two thousand and eight plus times two event to stop that. And I don't even think this coming recession, if it's ever gonna happen, is gonna be that big. Not for lamb chops. I don't think I, it's gonna affect lamb chops like it's gonna I, affect I, I, other I don't things. think it's gonna affect a whole lot of food at all besides the bottom end food. The, the, you were saying the packers, you know, the packers, the lamb packers, the people that are running on really high volume, really low margins. I see that's the people that's going to hurt. Yeah. And eventually it's all going to happen at once is what I see. Like you, Because if you take those margins that are already tight and you throw in 100% increase in tariffs and transport. Biggest fragile. Houston, we have a problem. I mean, it's, uh, uh, They're going to be probably by the time this episode comes out, they'll be feeling a lot of that pain. I, I don't I don't disagree and and I don't see I don't see how those low margins can can be sustainable long term with the current economic outlook I I just don't see it I, there's going to be a lot of hurt coming and and you know I I don't not sure you know some of us are going to make it some of us might not make it but all I'm saying is it's it's a very good place to be to be a price maker in this point in the game instead of a price taker it is and it's also a, I think I think right now people are really having to come to terms with how much food costs to raise versus how much they've been paying for it. And, you know, a lot of people in our small communities are seeing this because we're connected to our farmers. So I have people telling me, I understand why you're charging this much for your eggs now. And people in the city that are buying eggs at the grocery store are really confused why eggs are $6 now. You go to the little grocery store in Greensburg or you go to the Walmart here in town and – Really, everything sells. I mean, the low the low budget stuff, the high budget stuff, everything really sells. You go to the Whole Foods in Wichita, and you go look in depth. Ninety percent of the shelves that are the most expensive item is the one that sell out first. People that spend their money intentionally shop more intentionally. Absolutely. They don't go to the store to get a bargain. They go to the store to get good food. Exactly. The people that walk into that Whole Foods, they know what they want. They're going to go look for it. They're going to find the best version of that, and they don't care what they pay for it. And that's why yeah. farm-to-market is working better for people right now because people are coming to you looking for the product you're creating and how you created it, and really they need to feed their family. And if they can do all of that with the money they have, they're happy. Plus, those people have figured out that a single beef or a single ribeye from Brian's Ranch is worth in nutrients five times what the one from Walmart is. I think COVID has done a huge service in connecting people to their food and really waking people up to what what the value is of food and local food and the difference between Smithsfield bacon compared to my delicious bacon that I get from Kurt and Andy or whoever I get it from. We've actually done some cool measurements and, and how much food you have left after you cook, and it's it's insane. And the amount of food it takes to fill you up. That's you know, I can drink a, right a cup of milk the, from the is, dairy. You know, nutrient, nutrient density is, is key. And the sadiate, and I don't like think people how, are realizing how that. full you feel, not just how full you are and how much you need, but how full you actually feel after a meal and how satisfied you feel after a meal that's of real nutrient-dense food. And that came with a story. That doesn't just fill your belly. It fills your heart, too, really. Some of the best bread that I've ever had was uh oh gail's bread gail's bread yeah was turkey red that he grew and sourdough 
Yeah, uh, he made. I don't know if he grew the wheat and or not, but it was it was local it, wheat that he'd grown, and he made homemade bread. I, I think the wheat was his, and the corn came from Macaulay Kincaid. They made cornbread. Yeah, they made yeah. cornbread with uh, with bloody butcher corn. Yeah, we from, had a really cool meal with some people up in Wichita a few months ago. Too. Yes, that's that's uh, Russell said that. Mm-hmm. Russell Hedrick said yeah. that. We've uh, I've I've exchanged a bottle of brandy for a bottle of his whiskey almost every time we meet is brandy your thing oh absolutely is that a south african thing yep how do you make brandy uh from grapes grapes okay yep. i didn't know that so it's just like it's one of the few alcohols that get made from another alcohol because you know grapes wine brandy so you make yeah. brandy with wine it's the next step pretty nice. much yeah like you, i think don't you like take wine and pull some of the water out to make brandy I honestly don't know how they make it. As long as they keep on making it, I'm good with it. It's just delicious. You know. It's just delicious. It doesn't care. <laughs> you know, as long it can get expensive. It's just lot, just as long as it doesn't get scarce, well, I'm good with it. As long as the lights stay on, the brandy Absolutely. flows. Gotcha. Absolutely. So let's let's talk a little bit about farming for grazing. We, you know, while we were touring around, touring around the ranch this morning, you talked about you know uh, some of the history of some of your fields that they've been continuously cropped wheat for you know probably a hundred years since it was prairie grass and broke out originally so walk kind of walk me through the last you know seven or eight years on the farm since you guys really started getting into sheep and and how you're transitioning your farmland and what you're going towards so we're trying to get into a grazing system um when we started Literally, we wanted sheep to take care of the bindweed. Uh, the one of the quarters we we rented and then owned or bought uh, had a huge bindweed problem, and uh, that was the the main goal. Well, that was 2016's goal. In 2018, when we bought that quarter, um, I was looking at her balance sheet. Over two years on the 50000 or 60000 initial investment that she did. And I'm looking at her side of the balance sheet, and I'm like, shit, she's making a lot of money. I mean, she's, she's like tripled her balance sheet, and I'm looking at my side, and it's like red, black, red, black, red, red, black. You know, it's like, okay, uh, something's not, you know, maybe we should look at this another way. Maybe we shouldn't have the sheep complement the farm. Maybe we should have the farm complement the sheep. Because obviously, you know, the sheep is making way more money and building more equity than what the farm is. And so 2018 is when our vision really changed, and we tried to find a way to make the farm be more supportive to the sheep. And that's when our mindset change came on the cash crops. We, we were a big – we were first we were trying to see how the sheep could help the cash crops. And in 2018, we're like, screw the cash crops. We're going to find a way – where the cash crops and which cash crops we can grow that is beneficial for the sheep, which is why we stopped growing more corn and stopped growing more milo. Because you know milo stalks are really good in the, in the, in the winter for the, I mean, even cows. Well, sheep, if, if I got, like last year, we had a windstorm come in and I lost some ears. I lost about 30 bushel of ears on the ground. Okay. Well, that, that corn circle is useless to me for the sheep. I can't use it. If I, if too I, much corn? Absolutely. If I put the sheep in there, they'll be dead in 24 Sick, hours. Yeah. And so so we just wasted a 60-acre opportunity that I walked out to walk away from, which is still bugging me today. And so we, we, we decided that Milo is the best way to go because if the Milo goes down, they can eat it. If, if the Milo – they don't they – don't, 
get I mean it's it's not as bad as corn in excess. And and the forages are there with it. Well really they you know in a corn field they just pick up the corn. They don't eat the corn leaves, they don't eat the corn right. stalks. But in a in a milo field they'll eat the they'll they'll chew that whole freaking thing like a sugar cane and try and get every bit of sugar out of it. Right. So they're if, getting more fiber and not if, just sugar. If, if you look at a milo stalk that the sheep has been through, it looks like it got ran through a swather. I mean it it's flat, it's it's all chewed up. And so now we're trying to grow uh, Milo. Well, this year, last year, we noticed that in between the Milo rows, really there's a waste. And so we're looking at intercropping, you know, to try and what can we do with the Milo so we have better food after we harvest. And so this year we're going to do some cowpeas. So we're going we're gonna to drill the cowpeas with Milo. And then still harvest the milo and then hopefully have more residue and more biomass and a different plant to increase palatability and digestibility of the milo stalks. So that's that's the, what are we going to try and do this year. Now, it might be a total disaster. I don't know. I'll tell you, you know, this fall, but we'll find out. That's what we're going to try and, and do 30 acres of that. I got 20 acres of dry land and 30 acres of irrigated we're going to do that with. Okay. And and time will tell. We'll we'll have some cowpeas when we'll put it in. I'll probably put a, a pound of radish or a pound of, of, of rape with it, you know, just for a brassica. Pound an acre? A pound an acre. Okay. And uh we'll probably go like five pounds of Milo, ten pounds of cowpeas and a pound of radish. Okay. And and we're gonna put that mix out and we're gonna irrigate it just like we would normal irrigate a crop, but we're not gonna spray pre merge. We're not gonna put any fertilizer. We're gonna see what that does. How do the sheep eat the brassicas? Oh, they love it. Do they pull them out or do they just no, eat the tops? No, no, they just eat the tops. And, and it's very high protein. Uh, it's like sugar. I mean, they, they love for it. So so anyway, so that's been the challenge for the last four years is how to change our cropping system to match the sheep but yet not see our ass on, on a cash flow basis because we got to keep the cash flow up while the sheep is growing while we get to the numbers that we do. So we know we plant Milo because we can still harvest the Milo and right. graze the Milo. So we've been trying to – that's been a challenge for us to try and find crops we can harvest but still have good residue. Soybeans is a no-go. And so that's been a challenge is, is trying to find stuff where we can, we, we can really benefit and, and maximize both production and biomass and, and nutrition for the sheep for the winter because winter stockpiling has been a huge problem for us. That's that's my number one grazing problem is figuring out is is because I had to start planning my winter grazing three months ago for this for the coming winter yep. right as soon as winter's over you got to start planning your next winter's grazing yep. you know I'm gonna need to find some protein I'm not sure where I where I'm gonna get that but I've got a few ideas um. So the question I would have right now is how much – you're talking about that field that you're irrigating. How much water can you pump on that a year, like in terms of, of inches of moisture or acre feet? So I have a two-gallon per acre, and I have pretty much 24 acre feet. So if you do the math, you really can't pump that much. Okay. So I I usually end up anywhere between eleven and sixteen acre feet. Uh, uh, I say that eleven to sixteen inches. So so my so two acre feet is about twenty four inches that you can put out. Yeah. So I, I don't think I've done more than seventeen in seven years. 
So even though we so, pump seems like all the time, it's only, you know, 200, 250 gallon a minute. But it's eight, and it would be 18 inches of rain yes. on that field. The equivalent yes. of 18 inches yes. of rain. Okay. Yeah, which, which, for the listeners, is actually probably about what you'd get, maybe a little more than you should get, according to the be, National Weather Service. I think Service. we're about 16 inches average, actually. And so it would be, you know, a couple inches more than what we would get in rainfall if we get the rainfall. Uh, yeah. yeah. At the right time. At the right time. Right. And so, you know, we cannot... Uh, I would say we can we can probably stock about ten head per acre under a two hundred two hundred gallon a minute, and and and. But if you're getting ten inches from the sky and another fifteen from your pivot, that's twenty five inches of rain. Yes. Ten acres of cow, that's pretty strong stocking. I mean, that's a good stocking. Yeah, ten sheep per acre. Oh, ten sheep an acre. Yes. Yeah. So that's so we can we can stock. We got one hundred twenty five acres, and we graze thirty at a time. And so we'll run anywhere from 300 to 500 head per 30 acres. And so we rotate that. We usually have two 30s in production all the time. That's the goal. So we'll graze two weeks, anywhere from a week to three weeks, and then we'll change to the other side, week to three weeks, change to the other side. So we rotate anything between a week and three weeks, depending on weather, depending on heat, depending on rainfall, and we'll back and swath. And, and we'll rotate around the circle as winter and summer goes wrong. Because when these two are planted, we got the next one in production. Right. And as soon as we pull off one, we got that one planted back, and the next, next two is in production. So we always try and have two 30s in production that we can rotate between. You asked earlier about about strip grazing, essentially, and, and asked Brian whether he thought it was worth it. And the difference between that with cows and sheep, and you mentioned how your sheep seemed to kind of essentially mob graze is kind of what it sounded like to me that you were saying and that you can leave them there for a couple of weeks and they really won't go back to where they were. They, they usually by the time they go back, if you're any doing a half task job in management is when you remove them. Yep. And so we'll, we'll, we'll pay attention to that and, and they'll go into a field and they'll take everything from a foot to about four inches. And, and, and that's the whole deal of grazing 50%. Good luck with sheep. <laughs> I mean, I'm just telling you straight up. They, Are either they, they zero or eighty? It, it's it's all or nothing, and so they don't know what it is to just have. This is more about down. rest, I imagine, with them. Yes, a, a cow doesn't know if, where to stop at half that leaf either. It, it's with, <laughs> the problem with sheep is if you got to mop graze them, you're gonna leave half the acres with 100 percent and half the acres with nothing. So so you got to make a decision about what you want to do and how much you want to do. And I'm looking at how scarce food for each is, we've made the decision to graze it down, give it enough rest to come back. And, and so and so we when we utilize it, we utilize it. Like if we if there's a foot of forage, we take a foot of forage. Then we move on. It makes sense that your sheep wouldn't be as tolerant of the pushing that we can do with the Corianes as far as like them knowing selection and knowing what to eat out of a pasture because it's a smaller bodied animal. So less choice for less amount of time would affect them a lot more severely. So I could see why you would need to give them a bigger space it's, and not push them so hard. It's funny when you change pasture. So about a month ago, we changed from our grass pasture to the oats. And the grass pasture is mostly uh, – so if you've talked to a wheat farmer, there's a, there's a grass that can't kill in the wheat fallow, 
and it's and it's like a showy chloris. It's called uh, a feather top roach grass. Okay. And and everyone's got it. Select don't kill it. Roundup don't kill it. Paraquat just pisses it off. It it just doesn't die. So a lot of guys went back to a sweet plow to try and kill the grass. Well, that's what we have majority of that started off in this in this grass quarter that we have. We now have like four different perennials that came back, but that was the original that came in. Okay. And Mother Nature gave it, and we're like, screw it. We'll just graze it. And it's really nutritious. They love it. So we went from that grass quarter to the oats. When we moved them over for the first two days, they didn't touch the oats. They grazed the four-foot edge around the oats field that was the same grass as they had of where they were. Okay. They knew what they needed. The, one, one they, they knew they couldn't change over to the oats so because they were going to have you know the shittings. Yeah. And so they would, t- they would eat some oats, but for fiber, they would come back to the grass, and they cleaned up that two-acre or that two-four-foot you know, strip around the field before they started going into That's the oats. That's cool. So it's really funny how the sheep will manage what they eat and how they pick. It's like, it's like when there's pigweeds and kosher and toll stuff, when it's hot, they'll go out in the morning. And they'll eat the kosher, they'll eat the pigweeds. As soon as it gets, you know, hot and, and the stuff starts wilting up, they'll come back. They'll go back and they eat the short grass in the middle of the day. When, when it's, it's not so hot. Yep. And then come back tonight, they'll go eat the kosher and the pigweeds again. So they know what they can and cannot eat during the day if they have a choice. Do so you feel like the the pigweeds have something they shouldn't have when it's hot? Is it like a... When it's wilted, this high protein is it have, it'll, it'll kill them. Okay. Or the what they eat. In the middle of the day, is reacting to the photo period, the sun sunlight, and producing more sugars during the middle of the day when the plants they're eating in the morning and the evening are producing sugars in morning and evening, or they're not producing a toxin that they are producing in the middle of the day close to peak photosynthesis. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, it, it makes a whole lot of sense to, they, to they, look at that. They are really good selective grazers when it comes to what they can and cannot they eat. They have a lot less a lot less goofing with them than cows. Just like you said with the Coriannies, they probably have a lot a lot more condition to understand, to pick what they need to eat rather than being force-fed corn all day, yeah. every day. Yeah. And like you are talking about with the Dorpers, you don't, they do great on grass. They finish on grass. And that's yep. what that's where we need to be with our cattle. We need to be where they're going to go ahead and put on, you know, that inch of back fat on grass. Yep. And, and it's genetics. And then we can go take them and feed them a little bit of corn to blow them up to get that marbling in the ribeye that everybody wants. It's genetics. It's not moron. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that was my favorite thing you said all day. Put moron. What did yep. you call it? The, the moron. Moron approach. The moron approach. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And sometimes that's uh, probably written without an E in it. Yes, we, we started joking <laughs> with it. You know, Michael and Bryce and I, we, we, we do uh, – Bryce is in Hayes and Michael's up in Norton. And that, that, that's Bryce Custer we're talking yes. about, right? And, okay. and so the two of them and, and I have always joked about things. We, we text each other with goofy shit all the time. And, you know, because if I ask a neighbor what, you know, some of the things we think of doing, they're like, I'm batshit crazy, but – between Michael and Bryce, it's like, you know, I ask a stupid, crazy question, and one of them's like, oh, I've done that. You know, it's like, <laughs> it's like you know, we, we share a lot of, That's you know, mutual stupid. things. And, you I've know, done we, that. Let me tell you how I screwed it up. So we, 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 we've come up with this whole deal about, you know, they always tell you to put more on, you know, this, this or that. Oh, just put, you know, more N on or more P on or more K on or whatever. And so, you know, we, we've made up the whole deal about the moron approach because, you know, everything asked you, you know, they just want you to put more on and – it it kind of became a became a joke after that, but you've it, turned it, it you truly, started a hashtag right yes, now. It, yes, it's no, ranch, really ranching reboot hashtag moron. 
how are we going to spell that? M O R E O N dash M O R E, yeah. M O R E dash O N or M O R dash O N. Yes, yeah. something like that. But yeah, it, it's it's really I I joke about it all the time, but it's it's the answer to everything. Just put more on. Well, that's just, so, yeah. it, everything is like that medicine. You know, we we get a lot of we sell a lot of inputs that is there to reduce inputs and a lot of guys don't get it and i'm like you know it if you're going to spend this much money go ahead but you know if you want to try and spend less money you know try some of this try some of this whether it's biological or you know or you can you can spend the same money this year exactly. with the chance of spending less next year exactly well, the and system's it's, and it's broken. about it's about reducing inputs i mean like right now we we've got uh half of 2. Point, half of 4.8 so 2.4 we got 2.4 pounds of phos in our corn crop Okay. And, and it's not like it's this year. This is a new field, so this would be just this year. But on the field, we're just con- we're converting to Bermuda right now. We've put that on for the last seven years, and I do pitch tissue samples, and I don't have deficiency in FOS. And everyone's like, "Well, that can't be your mining." And I'm like, "Well, my soil test hasn't changed a bit in seven years." Well, you're doing it's, the wrong soil test. It's, it's coming from somewhere, you know. And so we we touched a little bit about the you know. Uh, Parent material, you know, mining parent material and converting parent material. I, I think, I think, we just touched a little bit on it, but I don't think people are even close to understanding the biology that what we can use and abuse. I would agree with that, and that that was a really good discussion, and we're not going to repeat it here because it'd be double over length. But that was a really great discussion about roots and uptake and and removal rate of nutrients from a specific plant like we were talking about a specific tree and how many nutrients are actually being removed by wildlife from that from that root zone or from that grow zone or even from like a zone kind of around that tree where it would be getting uh, you know bacterial and mycorrhizal fungal uh, nutrient exchange with other plants like and we came up so we were talking about a walnut tree and we figured that at least 90 percent of the fruit of that walnut tree gets transported away from anywhere where that tree is going to uptake nutrients. And I think you're right. I think that there is, you know, we underestimate the ability of deep-rooted plants to synthesize what they need from deep, deep layers in the soil. When it's healthy, especially. I, I, I I don't think removal rates has been updated to incorporate biology at all. To incorporate additional, like added it. I, I, I think, and, and, you know, like I said, you know, I, I've, I've put several people on the spot in, in, in a good way, but uh, I, 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 I feel like a lot of soils, there's not much soil science that's even been, like, the new stuff is updated, but there's still a lot of, lot of science about soil. I don't think removal rates has been updated in 60 years. I guess that's what I was getting at. Like, there's there's things that we think about, like, you know, how much nutrients does it take to have this crop? Or what is the nutrient density of this food? Like, those haven't been looked at in a long time. No, guys guys like, you know, uh, Lance and Ray, or like I said, I mentioned, you know, those two guys that I lean on for, for discussions like that. And, and I don't think even they have, have, have gotten to the the answer or the a good answer in, in how much biology have changed removal rates and the possibility uh, of of removal rates and and how you can decrease removal rates by having a functioning soil that with the relationships below ground i i i think we're just scratching the surface and and i think we can get by and grow a big crop with very little input 
Absolutely. I think I think so. I think that I think that that focusing on inputs and the things that have been taken away in the past and not looking at the system as a whole and all of the things that are actually adding to the system that's not just animal that's not just what you're putting on it that's the whole function of the way it works and the way all I mean, of the fungus works that like Tanya mentioned the grass I, I wasn't going to get there but I'll spend 20 seconds on it your pastures yeah you have removal rights yeah you put up you put up you put a cow on there she gets a calf. You raise that calf to 700 pounds. You remove that calf from the ranch. That's 700 pounds as a removal rate on that grass as a system from your farm. Yes. yes. Yet you don't fertilize or run an airplane and fertilize your farm pastures. No, the Why? Well, no, that would be ridiculous. Because the cows poop. Exactly. Because, because the cows, cows poop on it. The cows poop it back But on. you still removed 700 pounds. In, in, a, in a pure scientific way, you would weigh the cow or the calf that you sold. And, and science, and that's, and that's your remove. If you just use science, you take your calf that you remove that seven hundred pounds, and that's your removal rate. If and science just, would demand to know how what, nature is balancing her books and where that seven hundred pounds exactly. to build the cow came exactly. from. Exactly, right. That's I, my point. I, and and then that the reason be the reason being is the strict black and whiteness of science, where when yes. you look at our backyard, that's ridiculous. It is ridiculous when you look at our backyard. But yet as we a do whole, it every day, and we accept it. Well, who does it every day? That's you, – you look at removal rates. I mean it's nationally accepted as removal rates. No one challenges it. I guess it's Why? just not – I guess it's not something we think about a lot because when you're working with well, grass and when like you're not working with farming. We were, you we were in Holyoke and, and I asked Ray this question and Ray's like, who on earth would even think about something like this? And I'm like – Somebody who's dealing with the whole system because when you see you build a system, you can take things out and put things in and the effect is not immediate or the way you think so, it is because you're affecting the whole so system. So I guess that's my point. It's like you don't, your pastures don't need extra fertilizer because you took a 700-pound or 400-pound calf off. Oh, but corn's different. Exactly. I mean wheat's different. Oats are different. Soybeans are different. Well, they're, they're totally different from any of the legumes or any of the warm season or cool seasons of the grasses that grow in my pasture. doesn't work here. Yeah, that won't work here. We've tried it. It doesn't work. You're crazy. Go back to where you came from. I'm I, sorry. <laughs> I have been told to go back where I come from. What's generally your response? I would rather say not. I, I, was, I, was, I was asked to leave. I was in a farm visit in Arkansas, and I got asked to leave and not come back because I challenged a guy from the local extension. And uh, he didn't like my answer. And so I... He didn't like your answer or your question? He didn't like the answer. I mean, I made an observation with soil, and uh, he told me I have no idea what, it's, what, I do, what I'm knowing or, you know, no idea what I'm talking about. And I said, well, if I weren't, I wouldn't be here, would I? And, and so <laughs> and he didn't like that answer either. And, and I got asked not to come back. And I haven't been back, to be honest. But uh, I, I'm not sure I'm not the one missing out. But anyway, that's a whole discussion for another time. People, people in general, and like I'm going to put myself in this box too because I'm a people, and we have a tendency to get, we feel threatened when somebody challenges what we think we know. And if they're challenging something that's like we've built layers and layers and layers of knowledge on over the years, if they challenge something that's all the way down at the bottom of that, like they're challenging the base of what makes you you like they're challenging like a lot of your a lot of your core thoughts like and 
maybe I'm completely off base, but I kind of like, I get the sense that this happens in academia. Okay. So not to pick on anybody in particular at all, or any land grant university, just because we're in Kansas, let's say Kansas state. So you have a professor at Kansas state that shows up bright eyed, bushy tailed in his thirties, starts to do work in a field, gets tenure. They, then the tenure board says, we need to see some work. So he writes a nice paper that's full of incorrect conclusions, okay? But he writes this paper and he gets tenure. And then he starts teaching classes based on this paper. And five years down the road, he goes and does more research with some students. And it's like, the new research doesn't support the findings in the paper. But we can't go back against the paper that we already wrote that we're building our career on. So we're just going to maybe tweak some of the data to make it kind of agree. And we're going to keep going. And five years down the line, we're going to do that again. And we're going to have data that doesn't agree. But that data challenges us. So we got to change the data to where it fits our paradigm. So it's like we continue to do these things because we get we don't want to be uncomfortable. We don't want to be challenged. We don't want other people to challenge us or to challenge the things that we've done in the past or the things that we know that are true. And like we were talking, uh, your word that you used, egocentric. You know, that's that's a function of an ego structure. Like, I have done this, I have accomplished this, I have done this on this land, and don't you dare tell me I didn't do it right. No, that's not what we're saying. We're saying, yeah, what you did was great when you did it, because that was the knowledge at the time. Now we know new things. We've learned other things. Come on this bus with us, and you know, let's talk about some of these things that we absolutely know are true. Maybe they might not be. Like, uh, what was that quote? The most dangerous thing is not what could happen, but what you know with absolute certainty can't. Because if you know with absolute certainty that something can't happen, that's the one thing that will happen and will take you out of business. Yep. So, that's probably not a bad place to end. Where can we find you? Where, where can we find you on the internet, and how can people get a hold of you, Nick, if they want to argue with you? Uh, I'm on Twitter always. Always uh, arguing on Twitter. Always you? arguing on Twitter. No <laughs> filter. That's um, what Twitter's for. Yes. And so <laughs> they want the non-political, sarcastic version. Kansas farmer on Twitter. Okay. Anywhere else? Uh, no, we don't have a website for the farm. We do have a, a Facebook page for the sheep, uh, Vostorpers. And uh, those are probably the best two places that uh, if they want to talk sheep or, uh, you know, anything else unfiltered. Brian started down this path earlier, but I'm going to finish on it. Before he even said it, I want a farm tour, and I want to come talk to your wife about her sheep. So whether she likes to give tours or not, oh, she we don't might mind. invite she don't ourselves. Mind at all. She don't mind at all. You guys are welcome anytime. Well, you're Ashley's over there, so we'll have an excuse. Yeah, maybe we can get my sister hooked up with you and her husband hooked up with you and they can have a better situation in their lives. Maybe they could get sheep on their place. Sheep's happy place, right? Yeah. My, I, wife, my wife sent me a deal, one Valentine's, like other girls want flowers for Valentine. All I want is more sheep. Yep. So. Chickens. I, now that you mention that, <laughs> him and Kyle in the same room. Oh, no. Oh, yeah. We better send this to Kyle Cromer as soon as it comes out. He'll just love hearing his name on the speaker. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you guys would be a riot. <laughs> oh, that would be legendary. That would be fun. 
Well, all right. I think we're going to go ahead and get out of here. We've got a little bit, a uh, little bit of drive back to the ranch, and you've got a little bit of a drive to get home. I sure appreciate yep. you coming out today. Well, appreciate the invite and it's been uh, fun, Nick. Thank you. We uh, always like to, uh, you know, discuss what we do and question what other people do. That's we've got to be willing to accept questions, even if we can't answer them. And that's how if, we learn. If we're afraid to answer them, we need to ask ourselves, "Why am I afraid to answer this question?" And then answer it anyway. Appreciate being here. Appreciate you, buddy. Thank you. Thank you. Gang, y'all have a great week.